0: version of my testimony because usually when I do speak and give my story it's for a longer period of time so I'm happy to answer any questions you might have afterward in private if any of you want to come and speak to me about anything please do so I mean I'm in the clothing room every Wednesday night okay so anyhow here goes Um, I am a new creation in Christ yes um, I'm I'm gonna give you just a little bit of the backstory because the backstory is not really important. Okay? We all have a backstory. What's important here tonight in the time that I have to speak with you is to talk to you about my journey to recovery, how I got there, what it's done for me, and hopefully it will give you all some encouragement, inspiration, and some strength and, and something to look forward to. In any event, um, I suffer from abandonment issues. Really, that, that is the crux of my problem. And those abandonment issues created other problems, okay? I grew up in a, in a family that was whole and healthy up until the time that I was about eight years old. And when I was eight years old, my parents de- decided to divorce and go their separate ways. Which, you know, that happens in what, two-thirds of the, two, two-thirds of the population? Is that a pretty fair estimate? Yeah, but usually one of the parents is whole and healthy. The custodial parent is whole and healthy. And why is this important? This is important so you understand who I am, and I'm finding out from working with others that my story is not unlike their story, but they're afraid to talk about it, okay? So the custodial parent is supposed to be whole and healthy and that's why they are the custodial parent, okay. When my folks got divorced, my dad went away. He, he was gone, poof. But before he left, this is what he told me. He took me to a park with my two younger brothers and he said, you're the oldest. Your mother is not well. You're in charge. Now, my father, was six five, black hair, blue eyes, the most handsome man in the world, okay? He was also a baseball star. My father played baseball for the U.S. Army, and he tur- toured the entire world <coughs> playing baseball for the U.S. Army. When he got out, he played for the Brooklyn Dodgers farm team when they were still in New York. So I grew up in the church of baseball. I was always at a baseball game when I was a kid, up until the time my father left. When my father took me to the park and he told me that I was in charge because I adored my father like most girls I said yes dad I will do this I was only 8 years old what the hell did I know about little brothers and, okay but bam I took care of those boys okay Did homework with them, washed them, bathed them, fed them, kept them clothed, cleaned, everything. Because my mom was a surgical nurse, so she was always out of the house. (coughs) So I was forced to grow up at a very young age, and I was also forced to take on more responsibility than most kids, even most teenagers, even most uh, young adults. Funny story sidebar, the night of the New York blackout, what was that like? Sixty-two, Chuck? About that, my mother was down at the hospital and she was in sur- she was um, assisting in a surgery. So I was home alone with my two younger brothers, and doing their homework, getting them fed, getting them bathed, getting them ready for bed, and the lights went out. Okay, lights went out for a minute. But it wasn't just that the lights in the house went out. It was that all the street lights went out, everything. It was pitch black, total darkness. Well, it scared the living be Jesus out of all of us. My baby brother was in the bathtub taking a bath. He got scared and panicked. So he stood up in the bathtub and started waving his arms, and all the water was flying off his arms, hit the light bulbs. Light bulbs exploded all over the bathroom. Broken glass everywhere. That was fun, trying to clean that up and get him out there without him damaging his feet. In the meanwhile, I lit a candle so my second brother could do his homework by candlelight. He leaned forward, his hair caught on fire. Okay, so I'm like, I don't know, nine, ten years old. We were all convinced that it was the end of the world. So in the morning, because the lights never came back on, my mother finally came home. In the morning, we all got up, Still no lights, still no electricity. We cashed in all our money at the candy store. We all went to school, bags of candies, trading candy. We were all convinced it was the end of the world. Anyhow, that's, that, that, is, that is the level of responsibility I had. Okay, so th- this went on for a little bit, and then you know my mom decided she didn't like being a divorced woman. She didn't like me because I look exactly like my dad. And I was daddy's little girl. So, you know, she took a lot of her, fr- her, her hurt and frustration out on me. Um, she was verbally very cruel. I was told a lot of things that a child would never hear. And the one that sticks the most in my head, and I'm sure some people in this room have probably heard it too, is you'll never grow up to be anything. You'll never be any good you're a sack mm. okay fine yeah and then when I was about 11 years old she decided she couldn't take it anymore and she threw my two brothers and me in the car and drove us to an orphanage she told us to pack a bag so we all think oh great we're going to grandma's for the weekend right she dropped us off at an orphanage except when we got up to the front door she said Peter and Kirk, you go get back in the car. Yeah. That's how that rocked. And it was a Catholic orphanage in upstate New York on the Hudson River. Very, very beautiful place. So I'm standing there on the porch, totally bewildered. I see my mother drive off in the car with my two younger brothers. About an hour later, she came back to pick me up. She didn't apologize She just said, that's what you have to look forward to. Okay, so do you think that I had some low self-esteem issues? Do you think I had some abandonment issues? Do you think I trusted people? No. Not at all. The only people I trusted were my teachers. I did extremely well in school. I skipped a grade. I did really, really well in school. Then when I was about 12 years old... I don't know, I still to this day, I'm 61 years old today, do not understand why I was in family court at the age of 12 being told, you are being removed from your mother's care. So I went to live with my grandparents for a year in Arizona. I didn't know my brothers, no contact with my mother, no contact with my father. Nothing. And it was pretty cool because my grandfather was the one who took me to baseball games when dad took off. So I had an affinity for my grandfather. He's the kindest man in the world, the best person in my life. And my grandmother died unexpectedly. And he was a step-grandparent. And the family court law is kind of weird. Like, he's not a blood relative, so you can't stay with him. So where do you send a 13-year-old girl? I got put in the system. And I was sent to live with a family, not in New York, but on the other side of the country, in Portland, Oregon. A family that had three daughters of their own, ages 12 to 21. And Cinderella, oh yeah, that was me. I lived in the basement. I was expected to cook and clean. So I'm a servant, and um, very disrespected. Um, no, no kind of not no affection. Um, not interested in my development or anything. So I did go a little bit wayward, you know. I smoked pot once. Why did I only smoke it once? I didn't like it burning my throat. <laughs> Honestly, that's it. I didn't drink in high school. <coughs> I didn't party. I became an emancipated minor. I started college. I moved from Portland back to New York. A friend of mine helped me get an apartment in the city. And I started out working at a public relations firm. And there was a law firm on the same floor of the job that I had. And I started talking to some of the people who worked there. So they said, well, you're bright, why don't you come work for us? So I went to work a law firm. And I became a paralegal. I was trained by one of the best real estate law firms in New York City's history. That was the beginning of my career. I still didn't drink. I didn't drink until start pick up drinking until I was 49 years old. What, how, how is that possible? Didn't party in college, had a child, In a relationship when I was 19. When I was 22, this man was murdered in New York. Okay, so here I am, 22 years old, with a three year old child. I don't know how to parent. And suddenly I've got to parent all alone. This family was very loving and very, very good to us because they took care of my oldest child while I worked. And I had to work two jobs to support living in New York with a young child. So the abandonment issues that I had, sadly, I passed on to my own child. Because I had to make a living to support her. I was not available for her as much as I should have been. And that, that is, honestly, guys, that is the biggest regret of my life. Why is this important for you to hear? Please don't do it to your own children. Please love your children. Hold them close to you. Keep them close to you. Know them. Develop a relationship with them. Invest in them. Do not leave your children alone. Do not walk away from your children. Um, Yeah. And when my daughter was nine years old, she had a very unfortunate experience with an older man in New York. She and her best friend from school were coming home from school at the same time and he followed them and he tried to hurt both of them at the same time. And at that point I said, this is is not good. New York City is not the place to raise a child. And my child was so traumatized, I had to do what I could to give her a better life. So we decided, I decided, to move her out of New York, we moved to Portland, which I knew because I went to high school there. I got reacquainted with an old boyfriend of mine. Um, we started a relationship. We got married. We had another daughter. So my daughters are 12 years apart. And, you know, it was it was a marriage of convenience only. I finally I could finally say I'm married. Somebody married me. I had a child, a second child. I had a father for both my daughters, and I had a small home. Yeah, so, you know, still no drinking, no alcohol. And the funny thing is, is my ex-husband, he was a very, very heavy drinker, and one day he got up and he said, I'm not going to do this anymore, and he was able to stop, turned it off just like that. Pretty impressive. Pretty impressive. He was also a police officer, so, you know, there were some issues there. Anyhow, um, <laughs> like boys coming over to pick up my oldest daughter for a date, and he'd stand there at the door in his uniform with his gun on his daughter, right? Yeah. So anyhow, to say he was a hard ass is an understatement. Anyhow... Um, My husband had a very unfortunate accident. He was riding a cycle, a a bicycle and he didn't have a helmet on and somebody hit him and left him for dead. And when he flew off the bicycle, his head cracked open on the sidewalk curb. So we didn't know if he was gonna live through the night. He lived through the night. Then we didn't know if he was gonna be a vegetable because the doctor said he was gonna be a vegetable. He stumped all of us and he survived. And just because a person with a head injury is walking and talking and they're upright, Do not think they're okay, because something's definitely scrambled up in there, okay? No decision-making skills. Impulsive anger. My husband was considered a disability, but he could not collect because the injury did not happen on the job, and Social Security would not accept him as being a disabled person because he could walk and talk and he was upright. So I was the sole support of the family. And I had a very successful career in the legal field. I was I'm a certified paralegal. Uh, the the attorney that I worked with, we had a very close bond, and he was a recovered heroin addict and alcoholic. Um, he died very unexpectedly. It was. Christmas Day, and he went out for his evening run. And we had just seen each other earlier in the day. He brought his two; he had twin boys, and he brought his twins to see me. He went home for his evening run, and he had a heart attack. And they said he was like wanting he, he was dead before he hit the ground. He died falling to the ground. And part of his death was caused by um, his heart condition. He had an enlarged heart because. It was unusual for a heroin addict to have ever been weighing over 200 pounds, and this man did it one time. So, you know, the the drug pressure, the alcohol pressure, the poor condition of the body pressure, that having been that overweight and then losing all that weight, you know, his heart just gave out. It was enlarged and it blew up. Why is this important? Because what did, what happened with his death, I basically inherited two of his clients. And by inheriting those two clients, because other lawyers in our firm didn't know the practice, they didn't want the practice, that's how I got from Portland to California. I moved his practice to a California law firm, and that's how I got down to California. Yeah, so here's what happened. My husband did not have the courage to say to me, I don't want to move out of state. I'm a Portland boy. I want to stay here. This is my home. This is what I know. Do not take me somewhere else. No, he was not honest. He did not tell that to me. I went ahead and moved, and then he joined me with the children. And then I had to move from San Francisco to Los Angeles for work. I always move for work. We always move for work. So during our marriage, we moved probably three or four times from one major California city to another. And it was not a good marriage. My husband is a good man, but he has anger issues, and um, he's not really, because of his disability, he doesn't function like you and I do, and it's problematic. He was also very um, distressed that he could never find work. And resentful of me because I was always employed and always had a good job. So there was there were issues in the marriage there. Anyhow, long story short, because it's supposed to be condensed version, um, I had major surgery on a Monday morning and was hospitalized. On Tuesday morning, I sold an apartment that I owned in Los Angeles, in my name only, and I made a lot of money on it. On Wednesday morning, got up, trying to walk around, I got tubes and everything all inside my body. Really uncomfortable, not happy, in a lot of physical pain. My husband stands over me, I'm laying on the couch, and he says, not in a nice way, but in a very angry, demanding way, I want a divorce. So he had been waiting for me to sell that piece of property that I own. It was a three bedroom condominium in Los Angeles close to the beach. How much money do you think I made on that? Yeah, I made quite a bit of money on it. So he was banking on that and he waited for that and here I am in total physical distress and can't do very much for myself. So I said, okay, just like that. I said, okay, give me the phone. Gave me the phone calling? I said, I'm calling to make your airline reservation. He said, oh I said, yeah. And when I hung up the phone, we're going to the bank. We went to the bank. I took a little bit of money out for him. Took him to the airport and I said, thank you. Can never be mad at you because you gave me my freedom. I was unhappy in my marriage, but I would have never done that because I finally had a home for my daughters. And I could finally say I was a married woman and that somebody wanted me because my family didn't, right? So as bad as the marriage was, that's what I wanted. I wanted to be married. And I wanted to have a home. Because in my mind, giving my daughters a home was more important. So I tried to keep it together for them. Okay, so we got divorced. Whoo! Halloween. Halloween, man. October 31st. That's the day my divorce decree was signed. That is my favorite holiday of the year. Okay? Seriously, y'all. Because I don't like Christmas. Don't like Christmas. I don't like Thanksgiving. Since I moved to Texas, I have been alone on every single Christmas and Thanksgiving holiday since I moved here. Yes, ma'am. I hate Thanksgiving and Christmas. Well, the jury's still out on that. Anyhow. Okay, so I'm I'm getting to the good stuff, guys. I just had to give you a little, little backup story. So, I had a really great job at a major automotive manufacturer in Southern California, and I was a rising star in the company. I worked in the legal department. I had a lot of power, uh, very well respected in my community, considered an expert by many. My company decided to relocate from Southern California and move 90% of its business offices to Nashville Tennessee and 10% to Dallas the section that they moved to Dallas was the section that I represented in the legal department but nobody from that business unit wanted to move to Dallas not one single person not even a file clerk so they had nobody who had the knowledge of that department so they had this brilliant idea oh let's get cricket yeah, Cricket will do it. We'll give her $20,000 a year raise and a promotion. Going to Dallas. Going to Dallas. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> biggest mistake I ever made in my life. Oh. The biggest mistake I ever made in my life because you know what? I knew my job. I knew my product. I knew my client. I knew my, I knew it all, okay? What do they do? They hire a man to be my senior manager. Okay, look at me. Do you think I'm a little girl? Nope. Nope. Five foot nine? Yeah, and guess what? This man was smaller than I was. Okay, it gets worse. The man didn't, at my level, you have to have a master's degree, okay? To be a senior manager in my company, you have to have a master's of finance degree. This guy was lucky to string together 60 units at a junior college. So they hired him, and he studied to get his bachelor's degree on the job. He had a lot of resentment towards me because I was taller, smarter, well-respected, well-respected in the community. I had the knowledge, and I'm a problem solver by nature. They bring me all the crap. They bring me the crap that nobody else can figure out or nobody else wants to figure out. So he decided that he was going to destroy my career. And he set out to do that, and the first thing he did was he called me down to personnel and he said, you know, I've decided I'm going to restructure the department so you no longer have the title or position you have. He couldn't take away my money because I was relocated by my employer at their, their expense and their decision, and so we do have some protection under federal relocation laws. So he couldn't take away my money. What did that mean? For the next eight years, I never got a raise. Guess what? That man did not stay within the company. He went out on his own, pissed off a lot of people, made a lot of enemies. And God bless him because you know what? I do need to pray for that man. I do need to pray for that man. And that's when my alcoholism took off. I had no other coping skill. I didn't have any friends or any family here in Texas. I was all by myself. I had my oldest daughter, which is another issue for another testimony, another day. <laughs> but um, yeah, it was not good because I'm not one of the good old boys. I'm an educated, middle-class girl, considered uppity by a lot people okay from New York, City. Yeah. New York City yeah I'm a New York City girl and I am not afraid. anybody in this room who knows me and some of you who have had this experience with me knows that I am not afraid of conflict I deal with it head-on and get rid of it clean it up that day that way okay so that was the beginning of my alcoholism because I did not fit in with this crew okay I am sometimes the only woman in a room full of 30 men. And guess who the decision maker is? It's not them, it's me. Way too much pressure, no friends, no support, I turn to alcohol. Maker's Mark is the bomb. (laughs) But the problem with Maker's Mark is you can only get it in a liquor store, and what what time do they close here? Right. I'm getting home at ten, eleven o'clock at night, stopping, getting tall boy. Why? <laughs> Except, you know, it started out with one ball. Then it started out with a tall boy. Then it started, then it, yeah, it was bad. And I would stop at 7-11 on my way home, driving home from work. I'd buy that little four-pack. Big, big gulp, big gulp cup of ice. That was done by the time I pulled into my parking lot. I was around-the-clock, blackout, drunk. And that's bad because you know what? The big book says that with women, when we decide to become alcoholics, especially older in life, it is rapid. And with me, it was rapid. Okay, now about my recovery. That's the backstory. Sorry, maybe I took too long. Because what I really need to tell you about is my recovery. It didn't come easy. I tried the AA way. I didn't like it. I did not want to go into a room and listen to, I got drunker than you did.
1: I do not want to hear
0: those war stories. The puffin stuff. No, I'm looking for a solution. I'm looking to get well. I want to be healthy. AA didn't work for me. I tried it many times. I was in and out of treatment facilities. Tried those a couple of times. Didn't work. Finally, in September of 2015, my employer had enough of me. I could continue to function. I was a highly functioning alcoholic. You could bring me any deal and I could solve it. You could bring me any deal and I would close it. What changed was my personality. Okay, I became one of the most mean-spirited people I've ever known in my life and I'm very embarrassed and very contrite about that because (coughs) instead of building up careers, My behavior destroyed careers, and that was not my goal. That is not what I wanted. That is not how I want to go out. I do not want to go out as a destroyer. I want to go out as a teacher, as a mentor to others, as a helper. Okay? So I went to a treatment facility. Except they didn't tell me when I checked into this treatment facility that it was not just for alcohol and addiction. It was for Dual diagnosis, -diagnosis. (laughs) multi-diagnosis. First 10 minutes, I'm in my room. Some nice little girl comes in. She says, can we talk? I'm sure I'm going to say no. In less than five minutes, I knew all about her four attempts at suicide by drinking antifreeze. About the child she buried in the backyard. And more things than I'd ever want to hear from another human being. And my heart absolutely broke for this girl. But there was nothing I could do for her. And I was being selfish. Oh, man, i got to get well. I can't be here. I tried to get out. They wouldn't let me out. Yeah. they wouldn't. When everybody else went outside for a for, um, cigarette break, they wouldn't even let me go out. They would not let me go out. Because I was going to climb that wall. And I can, and I would. So I got into it with the director of the facility. And I told her, you are going to release me. Because if you don't release me, my lawyer is going to call you. Oh, no, not my lawyer. My team of lawyers. What do you mean your team? I said, I have... 260 lawyers from one firm behind me, get me out in two days. It won't be nice. I said, because I'm going to go into Dallas Morning News. Get me out. She got me out. I was released within <coughs> an hour. How convenient the zoning board has two alcohol stores strategically placed right outside this treatment facility. I was drunk within 20 minutes of getting home. Blackout drunk. I didn't learn my lesson because three weeks later I was begging to get back in that facility. (laughs) That didn't work either. That didn't work either. I had a lot of issues with my relationship at the time. He's a beautiful man. We love each other very much. But there are issues like there are in any relationship. And those issues became a little too much for me. So during one of my blackout, got to get drunk days, I decided I want some bacon. So I fry up some bacon in my house. But I turn it on, and I go and I lay down. Neighbors are breaking in the door because there's a fire in my kitchen. Someday I'll show you all the scars on my hands. Luckily, the ones on my face healed well. I lost my apartment, not because I couldn't afford to keep my apartment, but because I had a small kitchen fire. And there was only smoke smoke damage, but you know what? I don't blame them. I'm not mad at them. And as it works out, you know, everything that happens to us happens for a reason, okay? Amen. Honestly, you know, that was God's way of telling me, you need to take a look at this. You're in a place you can't, you can't be alone. You cannot self-isolate anymore. So... Uh, One of the nice ladies from AA, because I tried another group that I kind of liked, and she was very kind to me. The ladies there were very, very kind to me. She said, you know, you ought to try Maggie's place, Maggie's house. So I went to Maggie's house, and I was there for two weeks, and it is a wonderful place, and I'll talk to anybody about it who wants to hear about it, but it is a wonderful place to go for... Two weeks of re- intensive recovery. It's non-medical recovery, but it's free, and they don't say, they will not refuse you. It's a wonderful, loving environment. I met the woman who would become my sponsor for a period of time at Maggie's house, and I was drawn to her because I'm a hard ass. I need somebody who's going to be militant with me, and this woman was militant with me perhaps too militant, but um. (laughs) when I got out, she said to me, you're not done yet. You need to do a little more field work because I'm convinced you're not done yet. And she was right because I was home from Maggie's and two hours later, I was walking up to the corner store. Yeah, got really blasted. She told me, you have two choices. She said, you either take your ass to the 24-hour club Okay. Who's been in the twenty-hour, four-hour club? Do I have any alumni here? Oh, God bless you all. We have a soft reopening in October, and we hope to be back in business by the end of the year. She said, you either take your ass to the 24-hour club or you take your ass up to Homeward Bound. And I had been to the 24-hour club to drop off some girls and pick up some girls and drive them around and see their boyfriends and whatnot. I said, oh, hell no. I'm a middle-class white woman. There's no way in the world I'm going to go to the 24-hour club. Yeah, uh uh-huh. That's what I thought then. That's what I thought then, but I I am on the... um, steering committee so to speak or the group consciousness committee for the 24 hour club and I've spent a lot of time service time there and I've I've sponsored several women from there and it was a very rewarding experience so what I used to make fun of now is I cherish anyhow I ended up going to Homer Bound and I said okay I'm going to try this I'm here I'm here in Homer Bound with 26 other women Okay, I'm a straight-up alcoholic, a classic blackout drunk. What the hell do I know about drugs? The first, the first time I saw what I call the meth mouth. I didn't know what to think. I was, actu- I was actually, can you believe it? I was actually afraid of those women. I was afraid. I was twofold. I was afraid of them, but at the same time, I was like, because I didn't know it was a byproduct of smoke and meth or whatever, I was like, oh, my God, who would hurt them like that? That's what I was thinking. Okay? So, you know, here I am, this uppity middle-class white woman. I'm put in with these women that are there, either paper, CPS, court, whatever, victims of abuse, victims of rape. I mean, I'm like, oh, my God. But it was the most humbling experience for me because these women that I used to make fun of because I was an uppity middle-class white woman, I can now say I have had the extreme (sighs) benefit of developing those friendships. There are some that I have helped them get out, get a job, get an apartment, get their kid back. Feed them, clothe them, whatever it took. Okay? I did it. Because I listen. And what's important about my recovery, two things, very important. Okay? Surrender everything. Do not pick and choose. Give it over to him, everything. Because... Being told at eight years old that I was in charge, I took that seriously. And it ruined a lot of relationships. A lot of things in my life were ruined because I had to be in charge all the time. Now I don't have to be in charge. Now I get up, I get up, and I start my day with how can I be of service? What can I pack into my day? Because now it's different it's so much more important to be kind than it is to be right. I don't need to be right. I can be right at work. But when I'm not at work, I need to be kind and loving. And that is very, very hard sometimes. You know, for me to say that I need to pray for my ex-boss, oh, my gosh, that's a miracle. Because I used to detest that man because I was convinced that he was my ruination. No, he was not my ruination. What was wrong inside with me was my ruination. I cannot blame it on him. In fact, I am very grateful to my employer letting me go because by letting me go, I had to fall so far down. A lot of you don't know how far down I fell, but a year and a half ago, I was homeless. After I lost my apartment, yeah, I was homeless. It wasn't for very long because I got into treatment and I got some resources and I had a lot of people who were very kind to me. You know, unemployed, unemployable. My sponsor told me, do not go back to work. Focus on your recovery. Okay. If it worked for you and I respect you, it's got to work for me. She said, but be of service. Be working doing something. So what do I do? I use my education, my knowledge, my experience to help others with what I can. She said, go down to Austin Street, the homeless shelter. I went down to Austin Street at the homeless shelter. (coughs) I love being down there with those people. I love being able to greet them when they come in the door and say, hello, Mr. Smith, not hey, you. No. Just because they are without doesn't mean they should be treated like they're without, okay? I had less than I'd had in my life, but that little bit less that I had, I still had more than others. Remember this. We always have more than someone else. We're always going to have less than someone else. But chances are, excuse me, chances are we're always going to have more than another person, Yeah, I work the um, Big Book 12-step program through the Primary Purpose Group. Nice. And I'm a, that is my home group. But I chair the Thursday night meeting at the Ross Avenue Group, which will soon be back in the 24-hour club. And I am more proud of that than I am to say I'm a member of PPG because I am not a PPG girl. I'm a Ross Avenue group girl, and God helped me get there. My recovery really started taking off once I surrendered everything. I was no longer driving the car saying, Lord, fill me. Relieve me of this affliction. I stopped thinking about it. I just stopped thinking about it. Where I live, there's a beautiful, amazing Irish pub I'm Irish. <laughs> On the ground floor of my apartment building, okay? I go down there late at night, and I eat supper there a couple nights a week because I do work a lot of hours. I probably work about 60, 70 professional hours a week. So I do get home sometimes 10, 30, 11 o'clock. I go down there and eat. I can sit right in front where that Maker's Mark bottle is and just keep asking for more Club Soda with Lime. more club soda with lime so two things folks recovery takes off once you surrender once you surrender and you start to listen okay prayer is when we talk meditation is when he talks remember that page 87 and 88 of the big book upon tiring It's such a healthy thing to do because if you clean up your crap every night before you go to bed in the morning upon awakening, it's so much easier. Deal with your things as they come up. Don't bottle them. We all have to do an inventory to get through step four, which I'm 61 years old. I cannot possibly remember everything I've done wrong in my life. Okay? So we 10-step. When we 10-step, we get to clean up our crap right then and there. It's the healthiest thing, and you know it's actually the kindest thing you can do for the other parties involved. Don't have people in your life wandering around, walking around wondering, why is she mad at me? Why doesn't she like me? No. Don't have anybody asking, why is she mad at me? Why doesn't she like me? Deal with your things as it come up. So... I came through these doors because I wanted to see what Regeneration Through Christ was all about. I was very interested in the program over at Watermark, but I didn't have a way to get over to Watermark and back. And, you know, Watermark is a really, really big church, and it's an amazing program. But I so much prefer this room and this environment and our ministry staff here and all of you. Thank you for letting me talk with you tonight. Um, thank you for coming to see me in the clothing room. That is one one of my service. Great job. Thank you. Ooh, it's it's. Yeah. And,